The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Luke chapter uh, 20, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Uh, if you've been with us, it's been going through, you know that Jesus has been under attack by the Jewish leaders. Uh, all the main uh, factions of the Jewish leaders have been assaulting Jesus and trying to trap him with various questions. Uh, and Jesus has easily sidestepped um, their traps. Uh, and finally, they, they conclude in Luke 20, verse 40, they say no one, uh, they no longer dared ask him any questions. They've realized that this strategy is not going to work. Jesus is far too smart, far too wise. His understanding of Scripture is so far beyond theirs that um, they've got to change their approach. So they're not going to ask Jesus any more questions. But Jesus is not done with them. And he turns uh, his questions on them in, in this passage. Um, and specifically, he turns on the scribes. Um, the scribes, uh, at, at the end of the last scene, the Sadducees bring a question related to the resurrection, and Jesus shows that their understanding of the resurrection is faulty and flawed. And, and at the end of that, the scribes actually stand up and start cheering. Well, it doesn't quite say that. But they, uh, they commend Jesus. It says, Jesus, you have answered well. And they like what Jesus has to say. So Jesus turns now on the scribes and he singles them out and he asks them a question and he points out um, some of their character. And the question really is, why, why does Jesus here uh, seem to pick on the scribes? It seems a bit unfair. I mean, they're the ones who actually liked what Jesus said, right? They're the ones who are going, yeah, Jesus, teach it, right? And Jesus turns on them and he, he, he unleashes on them a, a question. And then he exposes uh, their godless character. And the question is, why does Jesus pick on the scribes? Why not the Sadducees? Why not the Pharisees? Why not the religious leaders as a whole? Well, I believe that it, the reason he picks, singles out this group has to do with their role or their place in Israel. What exactly were the scribes? Anybody know well, the scribe, the word scribe means a, a, a copyist, right? They were the various early version of, a, of a, a photocopier, right? You put the document in, you wait a really long time, and out comes a copy, right? That's what they did. But uh, really, they were way more than that. And several hundred years before Jesus' day, the scribes had the job of copying scripture, making copies, and, and several hundred years back, the, 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 the priests were the ones who were responsible for teaching Scripture. But uh, as time went on, uh, the, and as Israel fell into exile and was scattered around the Roman Empire, the priests, who tended to be more wealthy, uh, were heavily influenced by Greek thought and by Hellenism, it's called, uh, the influence of Greek culture and Greek thinking. And gradually over time, this group of uh, priests and, and the, the group of the priests tended to actually not uphold scripture. And they kind of moved away from a solid conviction about the authority and weight and truth of, of the Bible, and they stopped teaching it. 
Well, the scribes who spent painstaking hours copying the scripture loved it, right? They loved God's word and they were serious about it. And so over time, you saw this shift as the scribes began to defend and uphold and hold to scripture. And, and so as they copied it and as they, you know, uh, spent many hours in, in the word, they became good at teaching it. They understood the word and they were passionate and serious about defending it and teaching it to people. So by Jesus' day, what had happened is the, uh, the scribes really were the teachers of Israel. Right? They weren't just copy machines. They were the, the ones who understood and taught the Bible. And, and Jesus picks them out, I think, because he understands the significance of their role as teachers. Teachers have great influence over our lives. And Jesus understood that this group, more than any others, were influencing and shaping the way uh, the common people thought and understood Scripture, and ultimately how they understood who Jesus was. And so of all the groups, Jesus attacks them. He, he, he focuses his, his um, assault on them because they are the most influential people Jesus sees in Jewish society. And the same thing is really true in our day. Teachers are a dangerous group of people. Right? Anybody out here a teacher? Raise your hand. Right? Dangerous people. Right? Dangerous. Right? And a lot more of you are teachers than what raise the hand, your hands. Right? You may not think you're a teacher, but chances are you're teaching in ways you don't even know. Teachers are dangerous because they influence thought. Right? They influence people. If you doubt the, the influence, the huge influence of a teacher, just look, turn to the Middle East, right? There are wars going on right now and people are being killed right and left. Countries are being turned upside down by the Islamic State. Why does the Islamic State exist? Because of teachers, right? They exist because somebody has taught and influenced whole groups of people, to go to war, right? Teachers have great influence and power. Um, in our modern day, uh, teachers are not just those who are in classrooms, those of you who raised your hands who are official teachers, but teachers are all those who are imparting to us truth and knowledge and information about the world and how we understand it. So in our modern world, I would say that teachers are those from you know, kindergarten through college lecturing in classrooms, teaching, but it's also the media who is imparting to us, who is teaching us not just the news, but they're interpreting what the news means. And they're being very selective in what news they report and how they report it. Right? They are teaching us and they are shaping our worldview. And not only the, the news media, but also um, artists and musicians uh, who take that message and craft it and scope it into art that reinforces its message, right? So these are the teachers in our world. So let's see what Jesus says about, um, about this group of teachers, the scribes. Let's read in uh, chapter 20, starting at verse 41. Uh, but Jesus said to them, and that is to the scribes, okay? I don't have, he's speaking here specifically asking this question, I believe, to the scribes. He says to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him, that is Messiah, Lord. So how can he be his son? And in the hearing of all the people, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' uh, houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Um, what does Jesus say about these teachers? And, and, and what is the message for us as we, as we put ourselves under teachers? Right? Who's teaching us? And are we careful about the instruction we are receiving? Uh, Jesus basically points out two things about teachers that, that we should evaluate. And Jesus evaluates the scribes. Okay? He looks at their lives and he evaluates them as teachers on, on two basic criteria. The first criteria is their theology. Right? And and Jesus uh, points out that they do not possess Christ-centered theology. Right? Good teachers, teachers we should pay attention to, are those who have solid Christ-centered theology. Okay, what does Jesus say about it? Well, uh, he quotes Psalm 110 and a rather confusing passage. And if you're like me, I read this and it's just so cyclical and confusing and I, I just get lost and Whose Lord is what Lord's is next to whose Lord's side of what Lord, right? Confusing. Um, so let me clarify it a little bit. One of the problems is that the, there's different words in the Hebrew that we translate as the same word, Lord, in English. So the first Lord is this. The first Lord is God, Yahweh, right? The second Lord would be better translated Master, right, or uh, a, a Lord, but not the Lord God. Right? So uh, let's paraphrase it a little. My version would be this. God said to my master, that is David's master, sit at my right hand until I, God, give you, David's master, dominion over your enemies. Right? Does that clarify it? No, you're still looking confused, right? So like, ah, no, all right? Well, Jesus quotes this psalm, and he wants, the, he wants the scribes to unpack it and say, okay, what is this about? David here speaks to one of his descendants, a king who would be heir to his throne, who would rule over Israel. Uh, and he says that, that this future king will ru rule with great power and authority. He will, in fact, sit at God's side, and God will himself bring all of his enemies under his dominion and control. Right? Um, but then Jesus, Jesus points out that David acknowledges this future king as David's Lord, as master, as one who is over or greater than David. Well, first question is, why does Jesus ask them this question? Well, Jesus wants to point out and show them that they're, their idea of the Messiah is far too human. Right? That their thinking about the Messiah is much too limited and much too small. 
and that they really don't understand the Messiah as David did and as God revealed in the Old Testament. And it's true that this Messiah will be a descendant of David. He will be human. He will be man. He will have the right to rule on David's throne. Um, born of the line of David. He'll be a human. But he'll be so much more than that. And this is where the scribes failed in their understanding. Um, this, this psalm introduces an idea that would be upside down for all Jewish people. And the basis of it is this, uh, that uh, a king passes on his authority to his son and that that, that authority is derived from, from the originator downward. Okay, so the first great king of Israel was who? It was David. And David began a dynastic line, a dynasty, a monarchy that was the Davidic monarchy. And the idea is that David had ultimate authority and power and that his authority or power gets passed on from him to his, his heir. And then that gets passed on to the next descendant and so on and so on. But it traces all the way back up to its original source, which is David. Right? So all kings rule with the power that's derived not from themselves, but that's derived from their great ancestor, David. Right? So we, we understand how this works living in Thailand a little bit. Um, who will be the next king of Thailand? Okay, now there's a question, right? We're going to start a good debate, ask a Thai person. Uh, Pastor Bai, who's the next king of Thailand, right? It's, it's, a, it's a loaded question, right? And the, and the part of the problem is that, um, that that authority, that right to rule, has to be passed from the current king down to one of his descendants who's a blood heir, right? It's derived, right? You can't just, we can't just have an election. Thai people won't get to pick their next king, right? It's passed on from father to son, right? Uh, so therefore, the, the, the kind of the principle that comes out of this is a king who's a descendant is always less than his father. Always, right? The, the, the son is always less than the father. And, 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 and we see that in beautifully pictured in Thai society where there's great honor given to the parents, to the, the ancestors, right? Well, that was true in Jewish culture as well. Uh, they honored their ancestors. They, they honored David as the ancestral king and saw him as the first and supreme uh, source of authority for all other rulers. But it creates a problem because the Messiah will not derive his power from David. He will be of the bloodline of David, but he will be one who is greater than David. And, and the psalm describes it in two powerful ways. One, he will sit at God's right hand. Okay, that's a picture of ruling in a place of power and authority far above and beyond the throne of David. Right? If you're ruling at the right hand of God, you're not just ruling over Jerusalem. You're not just ru ruling over Israel. You're ruling over the universe. Right? That's what it means to sit at God's right hand. It's the chief position of authority and power of God's sovereign rule over all he's created. Right? It's way up there, far beyond David. Second picture, he says, is that God will bring and make, make all of his enemies a, a footstool. Uh, when, when your enemies are a footstool, it's, it's a picture of total domination. You have dominion. You win. 
right? You win over all your enemies, and they're all subjected under your feet. You rule over their, over their heads. And the way they would do this in, in Old Testament, when you captured a king, oftentimes the king would lay down before, the captured king would lay down before the victorious king, and the victorious king would put their foot on the captured king's neck, right? Making it a footstool. Not, not really the place you want to be, okay? Just saying, you know, it's not like, let me just put myself under your foot, right? Picture of dominion, right? Domination, conquest, winning, victory. So, so this person has dominion over every enemy, right? So it's a place, a place of supreme rule, sovereign victory, not only over Edom and Egypt, but over every enemy of God. Who could fill that position? Who would be worthy to sit at God's right hand and have every enemy uh, brought under his rule? Well, only one who has divine authority. And this is the part that the, um, the scribes missed. Messiah is not just a human ruler. He is human, but he's not only human. He's one who rules with divine power and authority. He is one who is infinitely greater than David, although he is truly a descendant of David. Uh, he is one who is both fully God and fully man. Right? He is God incarnate. And of course, Jesus doesn't unpack it. He just leaves it hanging as a question. But the only answer is that, that the Messiah must be so much more than what they pictured. And through this, Jesus is trying to point out and illustrate to all the people that the scribes are inadequate in their theology. They don't understand the Messiah, and that's a, a fatal error. As Jesus comes as the Messiah, as he comes as their king, as he comes to present himself to Israel as its rightful ruler, it's tragic that the scribes miss who he is. Their theology is, is, is flawed. Uh, and not only about the character of who Jesus is as a person, but they misunderstood what it, what it meant for Jesus to make his enemies his footstool. Ultimately, how would Jesus do that? Right? How did Jesus bring every enemy under his feet? But well, we know that he did that ultimately, bringing sin and Satan and death under his, his conquest through the cross, Right? Jesus conquered every enemy ultimately by giving himself as a sacrifice for sin. Um, so, so Jesus' main point is this. He says, look, all who would be teachers, all those who would really have authority to influence in your life, need to be evaluated and judged based on their doctrine. Right? It matters what they believe. And, and significantly, most importantly, it matters what they believe about Jesus. Right? Good teachers, those who we will really follow, that we will really listen, that we will really subscribe to, need to be people who are Christ-centered in their theology, who understand fully who Jesus is and fully what his work, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension mean. Right? Jesus says the scribes are not worthy to teach you because they are flawed, they are inadequate in their theology. Their theology wasn't wrong, but it was inadequate. Right? They didn't understand the full truth of who Jesus was. Second thing, 
Jesus evaluates them on the basis of their character. He says, those who would teach us need to have Christ-like character. And not, only, not only Christ-centered theology, but Christ-like character. Um, and, and he turns from what they believe now to how they live. Uh, and it's not very complimentary. Uh, first off, he, he talks about basically their motivation. What motivates this guy? Why are these guys teachers? And Jesus says this, uh, in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and in the places of honor at feasts. Um, Jesus is saying, why are they seeking this position as a teacher? Um, what is it that attracts them to this job? Right? Now, most of us know that teachers don't always get paid very well. Right? Um, in, in, in a lot of countries, it is not the top paying job. Right? Not even second, not, not even actually third. A lot of times it's like way down the list. Right? Now, if you're a teacher in a Christian sphere, like a pastor or a Bible college teacher, it's even lower, right? Like, and if you're a missionary, it's like, yeah, you know, way down there, right? So teachers probably don't do it for the money, right? Uh, we'll see that that's not always true, but often. So why do we teach? Well, uh, there is a da- an inherent danger in, in the position of teaching, and that is that teaching is very public, Right? It puts you up in front of people uh, and oftentimes in front of a lot of people, depending on how high up your teaching position goes. Right? If you're teaching preschoolers, it's probably a small class, but as, as it goes up high school, the classes get a little bigger. In college, a teacher could be teaching uh, hundreds of students. Right? Uh, in, in churches, many, many pastors in megachurches today teach to crowds of 10, 15, 20,000 people. Uh, they write books uh, that are read by uh, tens of thousands and even millions. And so there is, there is part of the job, you get to be famous, right? Uh, I, I have some fame, right? I go around, I got to be really careful, you know, like what I, where I go, because I know that a lot of places in Chiang Mai, people know me, and I don't know them, right? And it's scary, right? But for some people, that's scary for me. For some people, this is really attractive, right? And, and so it comes with it, fame. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll just prove it right now, right? I'm going to name some names. If you know these people, raise your hand, right? J.I. Packer, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis, right? R.C. Sproul, okay, D.A. Carson, right? So these are people that a lot of you know. And uh, they're teachers, they're Bible teachers, they're famous. And it, it teaches us something about being a famous teacher, you need to use your first initials to be famous, right? <laughs> so you can start referring to me as T.D. Dunham, right? Because I want to be, be famous, right? right? Uh, you go on down the list, like, you know, John Piper, Chuck Swindoll. If you go really to the top of the, like, the top, all, okay, here's two names. Raise your hand if you know them, if you've ever heard them. Billy Graham, okay? The, if you didn't raise your hand, you're not paying attention. You're asleep, right? Uh, Pope Francis, right? right? Well, some of you anti-Catholics are not going to raise your hand for that one. Right? The point is, teaching brings with it notoriety and fame. And there's risk in that, right? 
Because that can be the reason we pursue the job, right? I want to be somebody. I want to be noticed. I want the honor that goes with the job. And certainly that was apparently the motive of the scribes. Jesus says they love, they are delighted wearing the fancy robes that set them apart. Right? And the scribes would, would wear a special elaborate robes that, that uh, designated them as, as, as teachers. Right? Uh, if you've been to graduation, when you graduated, right, you get the robe. And remember, all your professors would march in and their robes were like so much better than yours. And I was like, hey, what, what's the deal? And I remember asking, like, why do they get such cool robes? And I get this, like, just black nothing robe with nothing on it. They said, well, because you're nothing, and they're somebody, right? And, and, and I, they explained, you know, if you want a hood on your robe, you've got to get a master's degree, and you get a hood. And if you want the nifty stripes, the little fuzzy nifty stripes with all the embroidered tubing, you've got to be a doctor. So I go, I want, I want the hood, right? So I went to got my master's degree so I could get the hood, right? Well, that's kind of how it is. The scribes loved the robe, right? They wanted the hood. They wanted the stripes. They wanted the, something that set them apart. It says they, they, they loved the greetings in the marketplace, right? They were given special titles of honor, right? Oh, teacher. Oh, rabbi. It's interesting. Uh, the, the, the titles of a scribe are the exact titles we, we, we see being used of Jesus, if Jesus were to fall into a class of people in Israel, is, is, Israeli society, Jewish society, it really would have been as a scribe. Because those are the words, the titles they used to describe Jesus. Right? They liked those titles. They liked being elevated because those titles made them special. It set them apart. They loved the seats of honor at church, right? Uh, in the synagogues, they would have special seats up front, kind of thrones where the scribes would sit, right? Right? It set them apart, made them special. They loved to be the guests of honor at banquets, right? the, the head table. Right? It set them apart as special. Why, what was their motive for teaching? Well, Jesus implies that their motive was their own self-glory, their own feeling of worth and significance. Uh, it made them feel set apart, special and important to be uh, rabbi, to be teacher, to be in those positions. Um, and, and Jesus says that, it's, that's, that should never be the motivation of a teacher. A teacher is motivated simply by what they get out of it is not fit to teach. Uh, their, their motive for teaching should be the vital importance of the subject they are teaching not their elevated position. Right? The scribes had the privilege of teaching truth from the most important book ever written. That should have been what mattered to them. The subject, the content of their teaching, not the glory and fame it gets them. They should have said every day, man, I get to teach the Bible. Nothing is better than that. But apparently that was not true for them. Second thing Jesus points out is that their focus was off. And by that I mean, was their focus on giving and serving or was their focus on getting and taking? Jesus puts it this way. You live to devour widows' houses. 
kind of harsh language. You devour widows' houses. Uh, their focus was not giving, it was taking. It was not compassion, but it was on personal gain. It was not in helping those they served, but it was getting from them. We don't know how they devoured widows' houses, uh, but it's likely that they served as kind of arbiters in, in settling estates. So a husband dies, uh, they would take the estate papers to the scribe, and the scribe would read them and would sort out where the estate went. But they were corrupt. And the implication is that they were cheating widows out of their, their homes right, for their own personal gain. Uh, whatever it was they were doing, the point is this. Uh, they were motivated by personal gain, not by serving. Their focus was not on giving and caring for those in their care. It was on what they could get out of it. Um, teaching can be poor, but there are some who make a lot of money at it. Right? The most extreme example of this would be Benny Hinn, uh, who is worth about $42 million. Right? Where did that $42 million come from? Well, largely from swindling it out of poor people, out of widows, out of guilting people into giving him money uh, at great sacrifice to themselves. Uh, third criticism Jesus had of their character was that they were not authentic. They were not genuine. Right? They were very inauthentic and they were simply pretending. Verse 47, he says, And for a pretense... They make long prayers. What is a pretense? Well, pretense simply means pretending something. So the scribes would get up and they would pray these very long, elaborate, flowery prayers. But it was not real. It was just a show. Now, Jesus is not here criticizing long prayers, right? So don't, don't get confused here that Jesus is saying he hates long prayers. I don't think that's necessarily true. But he does hate long prayers that are simply a show, that's just pretending to know God, pretending to care about people, pretending to be spiritual. That was uh, Jesus' view in his evaluation of the scribes. Their religiosity was just a show. It was just pretending. And so such was the character of the scribes. He says they're not real. And their lives do not demonstrate the truth of Scripture they claim to teach. There's a breakdown. There's a disconnect somewhere before, between what they claim the Bible says and what they live. It says you've got to watch out for them. There's a problem there. So what can we do with this? Um, well, Jesus here gives a, a, a command. He says, beware of the scribes. Right? Be on your guard. Be on the lookout for those who would claim to teach you. So how do we do this? How do we examine those who teach us? Well, first of all, uh, realize the influence teachers have over you. Right? The books you read, the, the sermons you listen to, the, the people that speak into your life, don't take casually the power they have over your life. Now, a lot of us, I think, are quite oblivious to this. Right? We're we're quite clueless as to how much power teachers have over our life. But I'm going to prove to you right now how much power they have. Okay? Again, I'm going to do a survey because this is the only way I know how to do this. How many of you live on donuts? 
like three meals a day, your, your main diet would be donuts and ice cream. Anybody? 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 Not, not even one of you? Right? Okay, okay. Let me ask another question. How many of you is that true because you hate donuts? Nobody. Okay, so here's the thing. You like donuts, but you do not live on them. Okay? I, I happen to love donuts. I love donuts and ice cream, right? And the truth be told, a dream diet would be donuts and ice cream. Amen? I mean, like, okay, so here's the question. Why don't we just live on donuts and ice cream? Right? Not one of you have said that's your diet. Why? Well, because the, that's the power of teachers. Because people told you you'll die at 14. You'll be 700 pounds, right, if you live on a diet of donuts and ice cream. Right? It's the power of a teacher. Because right? we would love to have that diet, but we don't because somebody told us, taught us, it'll kill you. Right? If not make you like extremely large. Right? You have to ride around in the back of a dump truck. Right? It's the power of teaching. Right? It's the power of teaching. Um, and I think oftentimes we, we don't take seriously... Who teaches us? And, and, and the not so funny side of it is I, I know way too many people, Christians, followers of God, pastors, missionaries, full-time Christian workers, who have got seriously derailed in their faith because of the people they let teach them. Right? They've listened to voices who were not firmly Christ-centered in their theology. And, and, and those voices are, are blaring out in our world today and in the church all the time. And, and I'm, I'm amazed at how often I am running up against people who have come under really bad teaching. And it kind of looks like this. Um, and it sounds good at first. And, and, you know, bad teaching, it's convincing, right? And a lot of bad teaching starts this way. God is love, right? And, and I believe God is love, okay? I'm, I'm 100% God is love. But it focuses ex- exclusively on God's love to the exclusion of all of his other attributes. And so what it happens is people start seeing and, and, and proclaiming, well, God is love, therefore God cannot be angry or wrathful or judgmental towards sin, right? And you'll hear them say things like, I could not worship a God who's like that, Right? A God who would, who would have wrath, who would judge sin, who would send and condemn people to eternity in hell. I couldn't worship a God like that. Right? Well, um, it would all be great, except for that's not what the Bible teaches. And significantly, it creates problems for the cross. Right? If you believe God is love and he has no wrath and he does not judge sin, then what do you do with the cross? And what do you do with Jesus? Well, what these teachers will say is, well... They'll say a lot of nothing about the cross, right? The cross was not the judgment of sin. The cross is not penal. Jesus was not a substitution dying in our place. Instead, they'll use a lot of really vague and obscure language about the cross being some kind of a metaphor for something fluffy and poofy and that we can't really describe because it's just so out there. And they preach a different gospel. They're not proclaiming the truth about Jesus as a Messiah. Right? 
And it's, it's just frightening how many Christians are buying into this kind of thinking. Right? We've got to be careful who we let teach us and who we let teach our children. Right? Jesus says, be on guard. Don't just look at their position, but look at, at what they are saying and measure it against the, the truth of who Jesus proclaimed he was and what he did in Scripture. Second thing, um, we need to test and evaluate their character. Right? Uh, it's not enough for a person just to have good theology. They need to live out that theology in a way that's consistent in their life. Right? We are to judge and evaluate our teachers in terms of how they live. Um, are they compassionate? Do they care for people? Are they teaching because they love the Bible or because they love the glory it brings them? Do they have a heart for the poor and the needy, for children? And do they show love in genuine, authentic ways? Uh, the church that I came to Christ in, really first started following Christ, was a very legalistic church. Uh, I would say the pastor was theologically, for the most part, pretty solid, very Christ-centered, but his character was, was not. Again, it wasn't because he was immoral. It wasn't because he you know, was gambling and drinking or you know, having affairs with his secretary. He was quite legalistic, but he had zero compassion. And I remember one Sunday, in, right in the middle of church, big church, he's preaching away fire, fire and brimstone. It was his thing. And I have nothing against fire and brimstone. You know, it's good. Um, he's preaching fire and brimstone. And, and in this huge auditorium, way off in the back, you hear this little murmur of a baby cry. Okay? And it just got swallowed up in this auditorium. But, man, he zoned in on this baby's cry like a hawk. And he points his finger and he glares at the very back of the auditorium and he says, get that baby out of here. They don't belong in this sanctuary. I was like the 17-year-old kid and I thought, oh, buddy, I think that guy's got problems, right? Uh, I said, that guy's got problems, right? There was zero compassion, right? Zero compassion. Uh, heartless, right? Well, why does that matter? Well, um, a worldview, our real worldview is the worldview that shapes our conduct, right? If a person is living one way but claiming to teach something else, the truth is they don't believe what they're teaching, right? If we really believe the gospel, if we really believe Christ, it will transform our life into people who are like him, who are Christ-like in our character. Um, Ultimately, good teachers should be people who are genuine and authentic. Genuine and authentic. Right? And, and, and here's the deal. Jesus is not saying that they need to be perfect. Uh, all of our teachers are human. They're all flawed. They all make mistakes. And not only our teachers, but we need to look at ourselves as we teach others. And Jesus ends the passage with these very challenging words. He says, they, teachers will receive greater condemnation. Teachers sit under stricter judgment, James says. Um, we all teach, right? Almost all of us. Right? You, you may have the position of teacher, but you disciple somebody. If you're a parent, you're a teacher. Right? If, if you're discipling somebody, you're a teacher. 
Uh, and as teachers, we receive stricter judgment. And the reason is because of this influence that we have over other people. The reality is people follow us. Um, so a couple of things. First, we need to go deep. Right? We need to be people, if we're going to teach well, who go deep in the word who do not just have a superficial knowledge of Christ, but a deep knowledge of who Christ is and what he's done. And we, we, we can never go to the bottom of that well. We can never get to the bottom of that ocean. Right? If we're going to teach well, we need to be going deep in our theology and our understanding of Christ, constantly deeper and deeper. Um, we also need to be people who have the character and the lifestyle that we can honestly say, follow me. Follow me. Right? How do you feel about that? Right? Would you say to other people, hey, I want you to live like me? Well, it sounds kind of arrogant and pride, but the reality is when you are a teacher, when you are a leader, when you are, when you are out there in front of people, you are an example. If you're a parent, your children are following you. Right? Uh, they're, they're copying you every day. If you're a teacher, your students are following you. Whether you say it or not, they're following you. Right? Are you being the kind of person that other people should follow? Well, far too, far, far too long the church has said, well, that's too, I don't, I, I don't want to be proud. I, you know, I need to be humble and say, oh, don't follow me. I'm a sinner. I messed up. I, I, I'm not perfect. Don't follow me. Um, sorry. Jesus says, you, inst- you incur stricter judgment. You're under greater condemnation. People are going to follow you. You better live up to it. Right? You better be the kind of example that people can follow well because they're going to follow you. As teachers, they're following you. So get it together. Right? Now, does that mean we have to be perfect? No. Right? But what it means is we need to be genuine. We need to be real. Right? And putting this all together, the gospel is, I'm screwed up, I'm a failure, I need the cross. In that, I have forgiveness and I'm restored and perfected in Christ. What does this look like? It looks like this. It means when you teach, you tell the truth about who you are, but you tell the glory of what Jesus has done. Um, Several years ago, and I've told the story before, but since we have lots of new people, I can tell it again. Um, I was teaching in India, and um, I, uh, it was one of those deals where I was teaching day and night, and by the fifth day, I had told them everything I know about God, the Bible, and science, and everything I know, period, right? And I'm going, God, I have nothing left to tell these guys. I've told them all I know. And, and God says, and just clear, this impression God put on my heart, I want you to tell them how messed up you are. I'm going, well, okay, let's go back to Genesis. No, no, no. So, so I, I just knew God wanted me to do that. And so I got up on this last session. I just kind of unfolded the struggles in my own life and struggles with my family and struggles in my marriage and problems, right? And, and why it's important for us to be people who are under God's grace. Well, it was just devastating for these guys, right? And I remember at the end, I, I got done, and people's mouths were literally gaping open. And there was, it was just total silence. And they were all just, their eyes were this big, and they were like, 
because they had never heard this before. Never, right? And, and, and the power as teachers of being genuine people, right? We're not pretend. We're not pretending to be something we're not, right? We, we need to be honest about our mistakes and failures. But we need to bring Christ into those things, right? The power of the gospel into that. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.